Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Recently, I came across an article from the Huffington Post on the topic of shame that I found helpful. So I thought we could start the sermon with some excerpts from this article. Let's look at the first excerpt, please. Um, Take a look. Okay. So the article is entitled uh, 35 Ashamed Animals. So here we see a polar bear. I imagine that he is ashamed because he ate the last fish in this area. Next slide, please. Okay, here we have a horse. I think uh, we can have compassion on this ashamed horse because learning to use the correct door can be a difficulty that I think we can all relate to. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, Not sure what happened here. Definitely requires further investigation uh, of this ashamed uh, dog. All right, next slide. Okay, so I believe this is a case of a walrus forgetting to send a thank you note. And so he's ashamed about that. And this is the last one. You know, this is in the same article, but this cat does not look ashamed but rather defiant. I could be misinterpreting cat owners. Please weigh in. Is he ashamed? What? He's defiant. Okay. Thank you. I don't, is that typical for a cat or okay. He just came from you, the cat owner, not from me. All right. I'm not here to judge. So, um, so how about humans? How do we process shame and guilt? What is the purpose of this powerful force? And how does this week's Parsha address the question? We're going to move through uh, three encouragements regarding shame. The first encouragement is detect the shame. Turn to somebody and say, detect the shame. Second one is deal with the shame. And the third one is turn to somebody and say, despise the shame. All right. So let's begin with encouragement number one, detect the shame. Let's start by hearing from uh, Christian psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson. According to his personal website, Dr. Thompson weaves together an understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian view of what it means to be human, to educate and encourage others as they seek to fulfill their intrinsic desire to feel known, valued, and connected. He understands that deep, authentic relationships are essential to experiencing a healthier, more purposeful life. But the only way to realize this is to begin telling our stories more truly. So here is his book that I'll be uh, referencing. It's called uh, The Soul of Shame. And uh, the um, subtitle is Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? So this is how Thompson defines shame. And this is a quote. 
What then exactly is this thing we are calling shame? How do we distinguish it in the moment it occurs? From the countless hours spent with people on their respective pilgrimage, pilgrimages, it seems that even defining it is no easy task, which, as I will invite you to consider later, is part of shame's, shame's intention. And this is my comment. What he's saying is that shame is difficult to define, which is part of the part of the insidiousness of it that makes it difficult to deal with. Um, for its elusiveness is a key element of its power. We can use various words such as humiliation, embarrassment, indignity, disgrace, or more. And uh, though these words get close to what we really mean, ultimately they are essentially symbols that represent the actual neuropsychological state we enter when we experiencing it. When we experience it, unquote. Thompson goes on to describe shame as a force which seeks to encourage its own cycle of sin and hiding. The first part of this book focuses on detecting shame, which is the, the movement we're in right now, the encouragement. What does that mean? We have to be aware of it. Detect it, be aware of it. Thompson's theory is that shame is the primary tool of evil forces and the primary source of sin in the world. He derives this from the eating of the fruit narrative in Genesis 3, where the humans hid from God for the first time. But why? Because we were ashamed for the first time. Shame moved us away from God after we sinned, causing us to move away from the only one who can bring restoration to the situation. The hiding part makes shame more elusive and hard to identify than the average negative emotion, just like, you know, sadness or something like that. This causes us to isolate when we're ashamed rather than connect to God and others, which is the healing process. Uh, so detecting is just being aware that the shame is there. The part of this impetus uh, this part of the impetus for God asking Adam, where are you after uh, the humans ate the fruit, right? This is why God asked him that. God knows where they are. He's not like he's scratching his head, right? Where Now, where did I put those humans, right? I, you know, they were right there when I left them. <laughs> he's not confused. So what's going on? When God asks a question in the scriptures, he says, where are you? He's doing it because he wants the listener to gain awareness. He wants Adam and Eve to think about it. He wants them to think, right, where am I? Well, I'm hiding. I've never done that before. Why am I hiding? Where am I? Where am I in relationship to God? Where am I in relationship to my wife? Notice also that God's response to our shame is to do what? To reach out, to call out, which brings us to this week's Parsha, Vayikra, which, what does it mean? And he called, which is the opening of the book of Leviticus, as I mentioned earlier. I spoke about the beginning of this week's Parsha, Vayikra, around this time last year, and uh, Rabbi Russ Resnick also touched on it uh, for this week's UMJC Torah commentary. So I'm going to draw from a little bit from my sermon about a year ago and a little bit from Rabbi Russ's uh, commentary this week. Um, by the way, Rabbi Russ also happens to be joining us online along with his grandson, Max. So let's say I'll say Shabbat Shalom, Rabbi Russ and Max. All right. Well, you can do better than that. Shabbat Shalom. There we go. You had to give him a warm Tikvat Israel welcome. Okay. 
All right, so Rabbi Rust focuses on the word vaikra in his commentary, noting that this phrase, and he called, uh, appears only three times regarding Moses in the Torah. At all other times, it's, you know, and the Lord spoke to Moses or the Lord said to Moses. Um, so here's Rabbi Rust, quote, the third vaikra comes here at the beginning of our Parsha. To understand it properly, we need to hear vaikra, Leviticus, as a continuation of the story of Exodus. Exodus concludes with the tabernacle or tent of meeting in place, erected according to the instructions that God gave to Moses. And then God's presence so filled the tent of meeting that Moses was not able to go in. Vaikra, and he called to Moses, and Hashem spoke to him from the tent of meeting, the opening words of Vaikra, unquote. So, uh, remember, at the end of Exodus, Moses has built this, um, and, the, and the Israelites have built this magnificent tabernacle so that God can do what? Be among Israel. And they followed every instruction to the letter. And then at the end, the glory fills the tabernacle and Moses can't even go in, right? To me, it's kind of a womp womp, right? But perhaps this is because there's a reason for it. Maybe um, it's showing that Moses is not perfect compared to the presence of God, right? Because God's presence, God is, is extremely, ultimately holy, right? Holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Um, or perhaps this is uh, because of the, we just had the golden calf incident. Remember that? right? That was in between the instructions for the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle. So maybe that's thrown a wrench into the God dwelling among Israel system. And uh, this is the way that the Torah tells us that. But also remember, what did we do last week as a community within Israel? We finished the book of Exodus and we said what? Chazak, chazak, vanit chazek, right? You didn't do that with me. I was very disappointed. What do we say? Chazak, chazak, vanit chazek. Very good. Be strong, be strong, and may you be strengthened. And we do that at the end of the book, which compels us to do what? Keep going, keep reading. And so if we keep reading, we know it's not the end of the story that Moses can't get in because the next word is what? Vaikra. And he called to him, right? And he drew him near. He drew him near into the tent of meeting. And now Hebrew is complicated, but most scholars consider the start to this book to be an and, va, va, an and he called. So why would you start a book? Why would you begin with the word and? What do you think? And it came to pass. So you're beginning with an and because you're connecting it to what happened before, right? That's what the Torah is trying to get us to do. It means that it's connected to the story that came before it, which we just read. The end of Exodus tells us Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting and the cloud of God's presence was with them. And then immediately in the beginning of Leviticus, we find this, and God called to Moses from the tent of meeting, right? So you just gotta keep reading. Moses couldn't enter the tent at that moment, but not for long. Because then, or and, God called to him. So despite the womp womp at the end of Exodus, the imperfection of Moses and the imperfection of Israel and the golden calf and all that, Chazarai, God calls to Moses at the beginning of Leviticus, drawing him near. 
So when there's a distance for some reason, either because of the immense holiness of God or because of sin and shame, what happens? God calls out across the divide through the tabernacle, through the the sacrificial system, and ultimately through the fullness of sacrifice and reconciliation through Yeshua the Messiah, God calls out to us. So that's a part of being aware, being detecting shame is detecting also the voice of God calling to us. Uh, So moving back to the idea of shame, we have detected the shame. We know, and that also it's important to know, understand that it's an outside force, right? It's not from within us. So we detected it, that it's there. um, It's present as an outside force. Um, And God is calling to us. In, in the meantime, right? He's calling us by name. He called to Moses. He called to Adam. He said, where are you? And he allows us to distinguish, to distinguish between ourselves and the shame. God calls to Adam. God calls to Moses. And God calls to us, enabling us to see where we are and to see if we are hiding. Are we hiding in our shame? Are we detecting this? And this brings us to the second encouragement deal with the shame. Once we have separated it, we can analyze it. Once it's over there, we can look at it. Is the shame valid? Does it have legs? On one side of the spectrum, we can feel shame for things we've definitely done wrong, right? How many of you have felt this way, right? You know you did it wrong and you feel ashamed. On the other side of the spectrum, we can feel shame for things that are not at all our fault, not even 1%. How many of you have felt that, right? And then there's a kind of a spectrum, right? You know, maybe there's, it's 20% our fault, you know, but it's not really that much, but we still feel shame. And so there's a, there's a whole range that we can, after we detect, we can kind of analyze and kind of deal with it. This week's Parsha points to the divide, even caused by accidental sins. That's when it's 0% our fault or 0% Israel's fault. Uh, this, is, uh, this is what happens in, in, in the Parsha. This is from Leviticus 4, verses 2 through 3. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them... If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Even unintentional sins, accidental violations of the Torah require what? A sacrifice, which was, you know, if you think about it, it's a heavy sensory object lesson for how our missteps affect our relationship with God and others. Israel unknowingly broke a commandment. And then what do they witness? They witness the harm that it causes uh, an innocent animal, an innocent bull, for example. But psychologically, we know this to be true. If I say something that is accidentally hurtful to someone, which is usually how it goes, I'm not trying to hurt someone, um, there's still a rift there, right? There's still something that needs to be mended, something that needs to be fixed. And this is why we can feel guilt uh, or shame for things that are mostly or not at all our fault. Amazingly, in Leviticus, the sacrificial system addressed this rift. And Yeshua is the fullness of the sacrificial system. 
So by trusting in him, we are able to detect, we are able to deal with, and ultimately to despise the shame that is caused even by unintentional sins. Now, the Jewish Publication Society has a commentary on Leviticus, and they make the following claim, which I've seen also in other places. This is what they say. There are no sacrifices for intentional sins. How many of you have heard that or seen that in some other commentary? Just two? Okay. There's no sacrifices for intentional sins. Interesting. How many of you have heard the opposite? There, are, there is a sacrifice for intentional sins. Okay. So if someone asked me, Rabbi, is there a sacrifice in the Levitical system for intentional sin? What do you think I would do? What would I say? I would be a good Jewish rabbi and I respond with a question, of course. Well, what do you mean by intention? Intentional. Yeah, that's what I would say. Here's something from the book of Numbers that might help. But the person who sins defiantly, which is a strong word, right? Whether native or outsider, reviles Adonai, also strong. That person is to be cut off from his people because he has despised the word of Adonai and broken his commandment. That person will certainly be cut off. His guilt will remain on him uh, from Numbers 15. So the consequence for a defiant sin is more severe. There's no sacrifice for that. But this is an extreme case. It kind of, I'm sorry, reminds me a little bit of the cat picture from before, right? The cat's just sitting there like, you know, yeah, so what? Right? You know, the toilet paper's all messed up. Um, but there's no shame. There's no remorse. But most of us aren't in this category, okay? We're enticed by sin, but later we feel guilt that moves us toward repentance. So I think there's a kind of intentionality that is in between defiant sin and accidental sin. And this week's Parsha seems to say this as well. This is uh, from Leviticus 5. Uh, then Adonai spoke to Moses saying, suppose anyone sins and commits a faithless act against Adonai by dealing falsely with his neighbor in a matter of deposit or pledge of hands or through robbery or has extorted his neighbor from his neighbor or has found what was lost and lied about it, swearing falsely. So sinning in any of these things that a man may do, then it will be when he has sinned and has become guilty that he must restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit that was committed to him or what was lost that he found or anything that he has sworn falsely about which he has sworn falsely. He is to restore it in full and add a fifth part more to it. He must give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day of presenting his trespass offering. There's still an offering there. He is to bring his trespass offering to Adonai, a ram with blem without blemish from the flock, according to your value for the trespass offering to the Kohen, to the priest. The Kohen shall make atonement for him before Adonai. Atonement, right? And he will be forgiven concerning whatever he may have done to become guilty. So the rem remedy here involves restitution, but also what? Sacrifice. It would be hard to argue that you stole something accidentally, right? I don't know. It just kind of fell into my hand and I ran away with it, right? Or that you lied about it accidentally. That's not, there's, there's some intention here. So um, there's an awareness of wrong and there's an intention. And yet there is a sacrifice. And also 
there is repentance and restitution. And those things combined brings shalom, brings wholeness. In other words, in processing our shame, dealing with our shame, we can recognize the need for repentance and sacrifice both to bridge the divide, to mend the rift between us and God or the rift between us and our fellow human. We are reminded that we are not perfect, but that we need the perfect sacrifice of Yeshua to mend that which we cannot. We come to the end of our own abilities. We're humbled. So rather than being overwhelmed by shame, we can be humbled and lean on Yeshua. Doesn't that sound like a better path? Perhaps you still feel that the sacrificial system doesn't completely address intentional sin. Well, the case can be made for that as well. But the system, I think, was not intended to be complete. It was not intended to be complete. This is how the prophet Micah puts it. With what shall I come before Adonai? With what shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I present him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will Adonai be pleased with thousands of rams, with hordes of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my belly for the sin of my soul? He has told you, humanity, what is good. And what Adonai is seeking from you only to practice justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, there's a limit to the sacrificial system, but a longing for God to once and for all finally bridge this gap and make full reconciliation. We find that only in what? Yeshua. And the human part, the part, our part, is to live righteously and to move toward justice and mercy and humility. But his part, only he can do. There's no rivers of oil or or thousands of rams. There's no amount of animals that will ultimately fully, completely take care of this problem. And that's why we have Yeshua the Messiah. Moreover, we can respond to God calling out to us, Vayikra, by turning toward God and turning toward our fellow human. It may not be our first instinct. What's our first instinct sometimes is to hide just like Adam and Eve did. But if we process our shame before God, then we can think about it and we can detect it and we can intentionally turn toward him and toward turn toward others instead of hiding. Hiding in isolation, what does that do to shame? It gives it more power, right? But we strip it of its isolating force And it's easier to manage because now you're dealing with it before the Lord. And he loves us. He loves us and he wants to help us. He calls out to us. James 5.16 encourages us like this. So confess your offenses. Let's read it together. So confess your offenses to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. So do you have someone? in your life that you can trust with whom you can process your shame and sins. If not, uh, I encourage you to ask the Lord to show you a good person that will help you deal with shame, who you can confess your sins to, and they can pray for you and encourage you. Scripture also encourages us to confess our sins to God. So it's a turning toward God and a turning toward others as well. It's both. Uh, This is also from this week's Parsha. 
So it will be when one becomes guilty of one of these things, he should confess about what he has sinned. So it's not just a, a animal system here, right? There's a there's an emotional component. There's a confessional component. Then he is to bring his trespass offering to Adonai for his sin that he committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the Kohen is to make atonement for him over his sin. So there's kind of a combination here. There's a confession to God, but who else is there a confession to? The Kohen, right? The person that, that God put in, in this Israelite's life, right? So that he can intercede for him. Um, and so, and there's confession, but there's also sacrifice. And both of those combined, what does that bring? Restoration. And even brings atonement, which is a purging or a cleansing. And this brings us through detecting the shame, dealing with the shame, and finally to, what's the third one? Despising the shame. Dr. Thompson, who I mentioned earlier as the author of The Soul of Shame, believes that we become what we pay attention to, that our brains are bendable based on our thoughts, and keeping our minds on shame can change the way we think, and it can change the way we think about ourselves. Shame is trying to tell us a story about ourselves, and we need to retell that story. As I said before, it can be helpful to think of shame as uh, an outside force, not coming from within us. The voice of shame is not from you, and it doesn't have to be the main storyteller. Consider this encouragement from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Yeshua, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is shameful about the cross? It was a Roman execution instrument, and Yeshua was tortured. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was naked, and he was abandoned. His death would have meant that, at the time, his ministry seemed to be ending in a failure, with his students scattered and afraid. That is, of course, before the resurrection. But at the time, it was shameful. This is not a conquering hero. This is not the victorious king, Messiah, that they were expecting, right, to overthrow Rome. He died shamefully. And yet, Yeshua despised the shame. He disregarded the shame because it's not from God. It's not part of the kingdom of heaven. It's an evil force that ironically was conquered on the cross. And we who follow Yeshua, we are empowered to do likewise. We are empowered to despise the shame. Shame is not a force of life. It's not going to motivate us to draw near to God or grow in holiness. It's not a good force. But the love of God which calls across the divide, Vaigra can do that. Remember, shame is not from you. 
it's just a name. It's a thing. But there is one name above every other name. Yeshua. I want to encourage all of us to detect the shame, deal with the shame, and despise the shame in the power of Yeshua, the name above every name. Let's pray. Avinu, our Father, we thank you that you are God with us, that you are so close to us, that you are going to encourage us in our inner person, um, not only this week, but um, all, all, all of our walk with you, Lord, to, um, to deal with shame and to, to despise it and to detect it and to enable your love to encounter us and help us, Lord, if we don't have a person that, w- that we can trust, help us to, to find that person and, uh, to build relationship, um, that we can, um, uh, come alongside our brother and our sister. And Lord, if, if you want us to be that person for someone else as well, um, pray that you would knock on our hearts for that, that we can, um, uh, confess our sins to one another and encourage one another um, that we are um, motivated by love and not by shame. And uh, we just, we acknowledge that your name, O Lord, is above every other name, every evil thing um, that came as a result of eating that fruit and disobeying you. And that we acknowledge that we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide from you. We may want to hide, but we don't have to because your love leads us, your kindness leads us to repentance. And you're so forgiving, Lord, and you're so faithful to us. And you enable us to come time and time again to fall seven times and to get back up, Lord. So help us, Lord, to think about you and think about ourselves in healthy ways. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.